Hey everybody, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to do a little bit of a content warning for the curio corner of this episode. During Gina's episode, we do talk about death and mourning and sentiment, and we get in a little bit more of a description of some of those things in the curio corner. So with that in mind, enjoy today's episode. You see, people collect all kinds of things, new, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we're joined by an incredible artisan who is creating beautiful pieces of uniquely designed keepsakes from human hair. We've spoken about her on the show and I'm so excited and delighted and I couldn't sleep last night. It's like Christmas to finally sit down with Gina Icavelli. Yes, you are like her unicorn right now. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast, like, patiently waiting to (laughs) message you guys, like, all right, let's see, like, am I popular enough? Am I too, like... (laughs) specific but I oh was no so oh no back from you guys so. we like talking to everybody yeah like, oh yes all of us oddballs <laughs> yes yeah. oddballs are my favorite um and i was we were talking before we recorded i have followed you on instagram from uh, through a, a rebranding <laughs> so i followed you when it was copper allergy right am i saying that right yes mm-hmm. and then now your mementos entwined and i remember when the change happened i was like wait am i not following her anymore what happened? I thought it was this person. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I followed you for, oh, I'd say like what, four or five years now. Yeah. Copper Elegy was, I think, at least four years ago, if not five. Yeah. And then I started like this eighth house collection collective thing. And then I got, you know, it was, it's been a lot of branding and trying to figure stuff out. That's okay. <laughs> so, we, uh, we get that. Do we totally understand totally that. Get it. <laughs> but thank you so much, first of all, for reaching out. I, you know, I was, I, we're always delighted to hear from people that want to be on the show forever. And so if you ever want to be on the show, just send us a message and we'll, you know, yeah, cause probably... we send out a million emails and like messages. And mm-hmm. so if you're like, they've not emailed me yet, just email us. Just email us. We're happy. But I was, I'm delighted and honored and just stoked to have you as a listener and to also sit down with you and hear the modern day version of what you're doing mm-hmm. now. And also I'm, you know, we, we always ask our guests like how they got started in collecting. And I was so struck by your answers to the questionnaire about the, the way your curations were as a child and how your family encouraged storytelling at such an early age. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up in that type of environment of collecting? Sure. Um, I think maybe it kind of stems from not having a ton of money. Um, so it was more about finding pieces that kind of spoke to you and then telling your story through whatever you wanted to collect. Mm. So my mom's got four sisters and they're all married. So it, everybody has a collection in the family and but everybody's so different. So, you know, my aunt collects vintage Barbies and, you know, my mom collects Hummels, but she also had these little miniature things that she would collect and hang up on the wall, you know. So it was always kind of about, you know, what spoke to you at the store and not 
you know, researching what it was and, and, you know, just getting hooked on one brand, Mm -hmm. um, except for my grandmother. So I think I mentioned in the questionnaire, you know, what really stuck out to me with collecting in the beginning was my grandmother's crackle glass collection, which I don't even know if that's like worth anything. I just remember buying it for like 25 cents, like (laughs) when we would go yard sailing back in the day. But uh, just seeing the little gems up on the the mantelpiece and just all the colors. And it was, you know, specifically for just beauty in her home. Mm-hmm. And it was something little that, you know, she loved and would, you know, tell me little stories about finding this one at this yard sale or this one at this rummage sale. So it was always about the story that kind of went with it. Mm-hmm. I was like, when I read that, because that's what we love about it is like when we're out picking and we're out looking for stuff, it's almost never about the value of something, but it's like, yep. you see something and you're like, Ooh, what's your story? I know. Or you're like, you're a little cute little thing. Come yeah. home with me. Come live with yeah. me. And that's, <laughs> I love, you know, I love telling people. And then I also wonder if people, I think collectors get it, but like I would say, uh, antique civilians, people that don't collect, <laughs> They, um, <laughs> when they come over and I'll be like, oh, I found this and I will, I will remember the estate sale. I'll remember what I was wearing. I'll remember yes. who I was with. And it's, it's the whole like collective of the experience of buying something. See, at least you can give that to the people. People will be like, where'd you get that? I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> I don't know. I know I paid $5 for See? it, but I cannot tell you yep. where, when, and how long and you, but you use your pieces so I mean, yes, it's more of yeah. like functionality versus mm-hmm. like just the story yeah which I love about that with you Jill because it really changed yeah. my perspective on collections because I grew up with the opposite yes you did where it was like you bought something pretty and then you just put it on a <laughs> shelf and then the only time you use like the finer stuff was for fancy occasions. So now if somebody's like, here, you want some of this and it's on a fancy plate? I'm like, wait, is this fancy? Are we fancy? <laughs> or is this just a ham sandwich? <laughs> what are we? We're fancy. Yeah. Yeah. And my husband's the opposite. He hates it when I use stuff. <laughs> he would. Yeah, he know. comes from the that's... same... I know. I used um, one of my depression glass cake stands a couple weekends ago. He's like, we can't use that. I'm like, why not? It's pretty. Look, it matches. And he's like, no, what if it falls? And I was like, oh, then it falls. And it falls. Ooh, tricks. <laughs> yeah. I'm that way with, I have all these um, little tiny juice glasses, very delicate, oh, which cute. I'm also very a clumsy person. So, I mean, Same. like, I know that they're probably going to break, but <laughs> rather me have them than they just like sit getting dusty on a shelf yeah. somewhere. So you go like, into the relationship them. knowing that eventually <laughs> you're going to break hurt. it. One yeah. of us is going to get hurt. <laughs> so I've already accepted it. So I'm, I'm still trying to be careful, but like, I know it's inevitable. So. Yeah. That's the, yeah. I had a plate and I, w- I went into the relationship knowing one of us going to get hurt. <laughs> However, mm-hmm. I didn't realize we were both going to get hurt. Cause oh. that bitch sliced oh, me. No. Yeah. I was like, Oh, oh she no. was upset. Uh, she was pissed at me. Yeah. Oh, How dare you? Goodness. Do you know yeah. that I am from England? I know. <laughs> <laughs> of the finest bone China. And yes, here you are bitch. trying to put me in the dishwasher. Bitch cut me. So that's, that's fine. Oh, one of my worst fails was a Pyrex bowl in the kitchen sink, oh. which I never knew that this would shatter. But I had a bottle of wine on top of the fridge and my boyfriend opened the fridge and it 
fell into the oh. sink and it hit it just right. Oh. And of course, it was on the side with the garbage disposal. So oh, I had to like, it like broke in like tempered glass and like a thousand pieces. So I had to like dig through the garbage disposal. Oh, no. That just, I, like, I hate so that. I hate when I have yeah. to go to the garbage disposal. I just think of like Final Destiny and I'm like, well, mm-hmm. this is yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Turned all the power off, but somehow it's going to turn on. I'm just going to sell the house. I'm not even going to put <laughs> yeah. my hand in there. Exactly. I'm just going to be like, well, we got to yeah. move. I had, um, I yeah. was sitting outside. It was uh, spring, early summer, and I was peeling the outside of rhubarb and cutting rhubarb up to preserve it because I'm that person and um, I had my big yellow daisy bowl remember that oh, we bought yeah, in Pocatello yeah. and I was out there and the wind came up and hit my umbrella and <gasps> hit the bowl off the table and it was the same thing <laughs> it just like all my peeled rhubarb on the <laughs> patio and then the glass everywhere <laughs> So uh, how are you crying over the spilled rhubarb? Crying over yeah, the bowl yeah. And, <laughs> and I just sat there and I stared just in betrayal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jill's going to be so mad because she wanted that bowl and I bought it. <laughs> and then it broke in my care. That's called karma. It is. So now mm-hmm. I don't Did buy Pyrex out from underneath yeah. Jill. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. She'll be so mad. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I caused that windstorm, so you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, you're, I believe it. <laughs> Witch. Yeah. And you were caught by the same kind of whimsy that I was with stuff as a child. Like, I just had a wild imagination. And you started with, mm-hmm. that was how your collection started, was your imagination with picking up old books and seeing what yeah. they could tell you. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of random. I, I don't know why, but like, so my most vivid memory of kind of when it started um, was just going to garage sales with my mom and my aunts. And it, we were always like a gaggle because we all sound the same. We're all five foot or under. I'm the tallest one. And I'm five foot. My mom's 4'11". My sister's 4'9". So it's just like this little babbling gaggle of women <laughs> looking for antiques. And, you know, normally when you go to like yard sales, it's a lot of like junk and stuff. And then you find treasures. Mm-hmm. But this one was just like treasures everywhere. And I just remember like the doilies and the lace tablecloths. It's like she had like set up everything as like a beautiful Etsy store or something. It was like all about like telling the story. And, you know, she was just very active with people picking up pieces. So, you know, she could kind of maybe tell you why she was charging the prices or just also make you fall in love with things. Mm -hmm, So, but uh, I was just kind of going through. I I picked up some books and I actually have it here still because it's, I'm still the keeper of it. Uh, Nothing fancy, but it's got a little gold fireplace on it. But I, um, when I picked it up, I was just kind of going through it. Loved, you know, the little note on the inside and the smell of the book. And the woman who was the host came up to me and started telling me about the books. And I can't recall the stories. I was probably 10 years old when this was, but she told me that she would drop the price to only a dollar if I would promise to keep it safe for her. So I ended up buying like a whole bunch of books from her for probably a dollar for all of them. <laughs> so, she was but like, I still have them. I love that she had this like, which maybe, I don't know, she sounds like a witch. She had this like foreshadowing moment where she was like, this person understands the importance of this simple book. 
Yeah, I think people do get mm-hmm. that. They can sense it. Yeah. I had that yeah, happen like, to me too. Like maybe their grandkids never cared, so they're just like mm-hmm. so desperate to find yeah. young people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like they on. see a young person, they're like, I must latch on to that one. <laughs> Let me Get feed you that. Yeah, I had. (laughs) I went to an antique store this weekend with my grandmother for the first time in a couple of years. And it's this I always forget that like older people don't think that we want to collect stuff like we're just being like drug along by our ears. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm helping my grandma put some stuff on commission and I just said like they are not taking me seriously at all and it's making me mad. And then I said something. I asked her, I said, do you have any uranium glass jewelry? And she said to me, this woman's was like 78. She goes, no, those kids come in here with their black lights and they clean it all out. And I was like, well, isn't that what you want? (laughs) (laughs) To preserve a treasure. As I have my black light, that's now my black light of shame in my pocket. It's like getting hot in your pocket. You should have pulled it out and been like, you mean like this? (laughs) Click, click. It's got the most aggressive (laughs) click, too. So... I know my husband we were somewhere I can't remember and I was like oh no I was with my best friend and I was like oh shit I left my light at home and she's like you're what I'm like my black light and she was like that would have been handy right now and I'm like I know and she's like are you gonna get it anyways I'm like no because I don't know I don't know yeah (laughs) Melissa was mocking me in Salt Lake with my black light <laughs> it's probably because she's jealous. She is. You hear that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jealous. <laughs> jealous. We're nerds, you know. <laughs> so when you were like growing and starting to curate your own collections, what did you start collecting for yourself outside of books and different things in your early life? Um, it was kind of a lot of experimenting to find what I connected with, mm. you know, cause I didn't want to connect, you know, collect with my mother and my aunts, you know, I had to kind of find my own thing. So I think books, um, I kind of got into glassware and Pyrex in, you know, the high school, college age, because I, I wanted to design my own home because I was going to be an interior designer. Like mm-hmm. I decided when I was like 12. That's what I want it to be. And so I started collecting, you know, pieces that I thought would look good in the home, which I loved that kind of like mid-century vibe. I loved the colors of the Pyrex. You know, it reminded me of my grandmother, but, you know, it was still usable. So I started my own little hope chest, not thinking I was going to get married, but it was for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, and it was so cheap, too. Like, I, I grew up in... Um, Connecticut. So it was a lot of yard sales. I don't remember going to antique stores up there. But when I moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country, everybody kept all their things. Mm -hmm. And you would go to like Sanford and Sons, like, you know, like level junk store kind of stuff, you know, so I could actually go like picking to find stuff and get, you know, there was um, when I went to college in the Poconos, there was a shop that was only open for four hours a week. It was called Two Sisters. And it was an old Jewish synagogue or temple. I'm not sure which is the proper term. And it was three stories of just top top level was clothing. Middle level was like glassware and Pyrex. And then the bottom floor was just like Christmas shit everywhere. Ah. So it was just like, and she used to have people from New York City come down and pick from her. Whoa. So she never needed to be open. So she, it was just like a godsend. It was like, ah, I'd go in there and like, 20 bucks would buy me just like 
a whole apartment's worth of like stuff oh that I would God. give Holy to friends crap. and family. I almost Googled them the other day to like see if she still existed. So we could just, you know, yeah. we could all meet up there one day. Oh, well, I'm like thinking I'm like four <laughs> hours open a week sounds like the antique equivalent of supermarket sweep. <laughs> like that stresses me out so bad to know there's there's three floors and four hours mm. and it's I just a game know, show I lights go see down you like start sweating <laughs> as you enter the door and you're like where do I go where do I go where do I go oh we gotta go for the heavy I know that's it we'll yeah. split and then we'll keep our phones on us and be we'll, like look at this look uh, at this we'll have iPads <laughs> that'll be on our chest we'll FaceTiming like FaceTiming with our phones and just be like looking around oh like, that sounds in- first, like stick out stuff be like don't touch a bitch don't touch yeah. no, like, get out of here there's a just, shopping cart for elevators so i mean you're just like oh see well, even better we just well, keep piling it in and then like yeah, afterwards i'm so stressed out <laughs> i'm so stressed out about it oh, i'm gonna miss oh, something i'm gonna have to hydrate have a good meal take a med mm-hmm. before we yeah, go we'll in. have to Pace empty yourself. our bladders we we'll have to see if that place is still open i mean if she's dealing yeah. to people that are coming and buying for their stores i'm sure I mean, she was ancient, so I, I mean, this was, Is she the trash lady from the labyrinth? (laughs) That's who she, that's when Jim Henson saw her, they were like, there's something here. Be like, you, I'm going to make you. Well, I I only ever saw her face like peeking over the counter and just like (laughs) surrounded by stuff. So like. (laughs) And if you didn't turn, like if you turned a certain way, you'd see her blink. You'd be like, oh shit. (laughs) She's alive. I forgot. You're right there. Oh, and then she's always like, always watching, always watching. She lowers her glasses and then back up. <laughs> yeah. Opens her like Sudoku. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's vintage Sudoku. It's not new. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> what I think we all kind of, well, every person I know has started, like you start in glassware because it was something that you weren't being influenced by, by the internet. It was in your like your uh, your surrounding your family life your grandparents like somebody around you you were like this is what you collect and then now thanks to instagram and pinterest and all that things you really can have like a cottage collection in a niche market but still have like thousands of people who are collecting the same thing true Yes, because it's everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, which was where I inevitably found you was I remember watching um, the Oddities show on the Science Channel, The Obscura Antiques, and seeing Evan Mickelson's collection of hair work. And I was, of course, I'm a hairdresser, so I was instantly fascinated and started doing all of the research I could do. And this was... Oh, a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I mean, and you know this, obviously, better than anybody, finding anything to do with Victorian hair work outside of photos of somebody's collection is like a true needle in a haystack, especially 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Still, I mean, it just blows my mind how popular it was and how little still exists yeah so what what started your journey into hair work initially or even wanting to go down that route yeah it's, it's kind of taken me a while to kind of piece it together how exactly I ended up here because I, I, I think back and I'm like all right this way this way you know like it's just a lot of bouncing around mm-hmm. but I think 
what it was is because I'm, I'm kind of a late bloomer coming to this. You know, I've always loved museums. I've seen hair work. You know, I grew up right outside of Gettysburg. I spent every weekend there going to the museums and always admired it, never planned on collecting. But it was more of kind of like this subconscious planting of little seeds mm. that all kind of like came together in my early 30s. Then all of a sudden it just kind of like blossomed into like, oh, like this is it. Like this is your purpose. Like this is your people. These are your people. This is your passion. But it, like it kind of took some little bit of like roundabouts to get there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as I mentioned, like I wanted to be an interior designer and that was my focus. So I went to college, you know, I did all the internships, you know, I moved to Charleston, um, South Carolina in 2013 because there's a lot of money down here and I wanted to do some high-end residential design. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's where I wanted to be. Right. And I had my dream job, but you know, I was working 70 hours a week at the computer Ugh. and I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything hands-on. Like I wanted to do something with my hands again. And I, I actually um, took jewelry classes when I was in high school. I was fortunate enough to live in a town that had an amazing art program. And I actually learned how to solder and do castings and wax carvings, like oh, wow. everything in high school. And I mean, that wasn't even offered like at my college basically. No. So like, yeah. That's I so didn't cool. continue it, but like I, I knew that I loved that and like would love to get back into that. So I kind of started playing around just like on the side. And that's where copper elegy came from. Cause I had no money for equipment <laughs> and I couldn't take classes. I mean, so I just bought, copper tubing from Lowe's mm -hmm. and started making these really minimalistic bracelets for like 50 bucks. But I made them so that it could hold either ashes or hair. And so that was kind of where it started, like just, just playing with the idea with hair. Um, because, you know, like, like you, like I knew what hair jewelry was and I loved kind of like that idea of, of a keepsake. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw oddities, like, kind of resurfaced the tv show i was like "Ooh, like okay there's other people out there that really know this sentiment and love it mm -hmm. so like i wanted to bring that back and so i started researching i'm like i love researching just give me books i'll go to the library the historic society mm -hmm. newspapers and just start like I, I just love stories of people um so not like when i talk about loving history i don't talk about like the wars and the dates and this, like, mm -hmm. I love the stories. So, you know, in, in Gettysburg, there's a story of Jenny Wade, who's the only civilian woman killed in the war. So you can go to her house. So like, that was like my realm. Like I just loved the personal stories and yeah. that's so connected to the hair jewelry and just diving into like the Victorian good death and that whole memento mori concept. I just felt like that was important for us to bring back. Mm-hmm slowly in a modern way and I didn't want it to be an oddity so that's why I started with the very kind of minimalistic looking at first yeah and, and then I started kind of going back into the more <laughs> traditional styles <laughs> which that was what struck me first when I first saw your work was it was perfectly sentimental and disguised enough that people that get eked out about memorial jewelry or memorials in general that that are created with something of that person that it was disguised in such a way that the wearer would know exactly what it was but a passerby 
would just think it was a beautiful piece of art, which is what it is. Mm-hmm. And then watching yeah, that you. That was my goal. And you mastered it beautifully. I remember I was telling somebody about the copper cuffs. So they have this, it's this beautiful thin copper cuff. And then inlaid into it is either a single little braid or plait or twist of hair. And then, or um, ashes set into that line, covered in resin, right? Yeah. No, I actually use uh, medical grade tubing. And then I fill the tubing. So it's almost like a little shaker. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) If you wanted to, but I I didn't want to like, that's the thing with the bracelets. Like I don't have to treat the hair and I don't have to do anything with the ashes. Like I wanted to keep them in their raw natural state. Mm. So like if the bracelet was damaged or if you wanted to upsize or, you know, like you wouldn't lose the hair permanently if something happened to the bracelet. That's a, I'm, that's mm-hmm. what forethought to have about keeping it everlasting instead of yeah. one time. And when I started doing research and trying to find stuff about hair art, I found like one pattern book, but I mean, you really have to sit down and take some time with it because it doesn't make any fucking sense. Like as a layman, <laughs> <laughs> when you're with Mar- the Mark Campbell book. And I found that when I did the program for the antique club that I'm in, but oh. how did you start? Cause they had, the- okay. So sidebar nation, the antique club that I'm in, a handful of the women knew what Victorian art mourning and memento mori was. And then the other half had no idea, which was striking to me because they all would have had grandmothers and great grandmothers that had seen it while they were growing up because they had great grandmothers that would have been, you know, babies or young children coming out of the civil war era. And that time in America when, you know, memento mori was a little different in our country than it was in England where it originated. It was a little more simple here. But when did you start to learn traditional techniques and what is that like? Like, is it just like teaching yourself and seeing what's going to work or what, how are you finding like tutorials or what are you, where are you looking for that stuff? Sure. Um, let me think here. So, but maybe take a little step back. So oh, yeah. I started getting into kind of this um, memento mori, which is, you know, Latin for remember you will die, the sentimental, um, just kind of branching off of the Civil War. There was a documentary or is a documentary by Rick Burns called Death in the Civil War. Mm. And it gets into, you know, how people dealt with so much death and, you know, going to war and not knowing if you were going to ever see your loved one again. So they would often give hair to their loved ones to bring on the battlefield. So, and then they would have buddies. And so this is all in the documentary and it's all about, you know, how they would die the good death on the battlefield. And so they would have a buddy that would surround them with the photos and the hair of their loved ones while they died. And so um, that documentary led me into um, a book called this, this Republic of Suffering by Drew Gilpin Faust. And then that kind of spurred into a whole researching into hair work. And luckily with Google Books and online archives, like all of these books are available online for free. Wow. So as you mentioned, like Mark Campbell's book, it's literally called The Self-Instructor in the Heart Art of Hair Work, <laughs> which Thank goodness for Victorians with their love for manuals for things Mm -hmm. and always teaching other people because, I mean, there are so many hair work books 
you know, in addition to that one, there's also patterns in Goatee's Ladies Book, Peterson Magazine, um, just random little probably local things and people wanting to go and travel and teach. And so I really wanted to kind of embrace that and didn't really see anybody else doing it. There was, you know, a handful of people um, maybe doing it for reenactors in Civil War um, type of things. But I wanted to bring it back in a modern way. But I also wanted to learn the tradition. Yeah. So I just started experimenting. Yeah. Like you said, I, I pulled um, Mark Campbell's book and just started playing with patterns. But I didn't realize when I started this that the beginner's introduction is actually at the end of the book. So you would think it'd be at the beginning, like, here's all your starting parts and pieces. This is what this is called. Like, here's the introduction, and then here's the patterns. Generally. So (laughs) I'm going through the book like, all right, well, I got to figure out how to make a table. I don't know what size it is. So literally, I was just like pulling stuff out of my butt. Like, (laughs) like, all right, we're just going to like find this table. And sorry, I guess I should relate it back to... um, the table that I was working with in the beginning is actually a Japanese technique of braiding called kumihimo, oh. which is the same thing. It's the round disc, and then you move. The, for them, it was silk cords, and they would actually make the um, belts for samurais or for geishas. Oh, cool. oh. So it's very similar, and they use the same form. So I was able to kind of learn techniques on how to hold the the hair Mm. and keep everything balanced by watching youtube on kumihimo um but you know there's not much for instructions out there on that either because it's again kind of a dying art because that's all made by machines now Mm -hmm. you know and who's going to want to pay the price you know except for people who have more money which is you know hopefully you know trying to embrace that tradition but not also like keep it for the wealthy is always kind of like that balance so i did a lot of um trading in the beginning with other artists so i could have excuses to practice and learn and make pieces of jewelry but then also get things in return so i have all sorts of drawings and paintings and you know t-shirts and whatnot so that i could learn this art by you know but also not having people with high expectations of what they were getting in the beginning. So. Right. Which is mm-hmm. a great way to build your skill and your portfolio by doing like that low mm-hmm. stress type of creative work, low stress. I use that loosely, but when somebody's not paying for it, it's a little <laughs> yeah. easier to make something <laughs> than when it's exactly. being paid for. And when you were starting this, where were you sourcing your hair from? That's funny. It always surprises me that that's the question of the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did use human hair extensions just from like Sally's beauty supply, which then my good friend's a hairdresser. And then she kind of moved down in between me starting. And then she told me about this whole world of like, don't use hair extensions. They're often, you know, stolen from women in India. And there's like this whole black Mm -hmm. market, terrible trade. So then I was like, all right, well, I guess I better start bugging my friends and using my own hair. And I have fairly long hair. Mm-hmm. So I started kind of cutting my own for a little bit and practicing. Um, and then also my friend who's the hairdresser, I was like, all right, well, sneak me some hair. <laughs> you know, the longer hair. Not that I ever kept those pieces. They're just for display. Because right. you know, I, I think you mentioned in one of your episodes um, that it's 
it kind of feels weird stealing hair from other people. Yeah, <laughs> if know, they don't know about so it. Personal. Especially if you start petting it and be like, oh gosh, that's nice. Qual- oh, Your hair would make a beautiful bracelet. Super cute oh, yes. as a ring. And then people will be like, okay, <laughs> where friendship is done. <laughs> I always have that thought when I see people with beautiful hair. I'm like, oh my God, I could braid the shit out of that. <laughs> my boyfriend's yeah. like, get away from me. I know. He's well, still not really yeah. cool with it. But <laughs> Sam would do that with me. Yeah. And now that I know her obsession with hair, I'm like, mm. One of these days, she's going to be like, oh, sorry, you're bald now. Sorry, I had the opportunity to take an ass ton of hair when we cut your hair off. you did. And I threw it away. It's garbage hair now. (laughs) It's in the landfill of good and plenty. Which is funny because, I mean, I don't really have any of my friends' hair either yet. It's been on my mind. But I do have a bracelet made with my sister's hair that I um, bugged them for some. And I've been bugging them again because I want to get some pieces for my mom and aunts and all that. Yeah, but yeah. It's it's funny how you don't think about it for like your own, yeah, you know, family and whatnot at first. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's always a different. It's like stranger. I don't know if it's because like uh, oh, it's my family, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I What's, see them every day. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. I see. I cut your hair all the time. It's whatever. <laughs> but I, my grandmother has beautiful pure white hair, and then oh, my mom beautiful. is going to have that same hair. Mm-hmm. So I think eventually I would love to have something made like a like a three generation piece. Well, my mm-hmm. hair, my mom's hair, my grandma's hair, I think would be. But my grandma's hair is very short, so it would make just a tiny little switch. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I was I don't have any of my grandparents hairs because they all passed away early. Mm. I mean, before I hit before I graduated from college, you know. So yeah. like I know, I don't have their hair. They were all you know put in mausoleums, so there's no ashes, and it's you know I don't even know 600 miles from me, so I can't even go visit their graves. But oh, wow. yeah. I do think about like oh like every time I have get a piece with somebody's grandparents' hair, I'm like oh they're so lucky, they're so lucky. Like so you better bug grandma I will. earlier. <laughs> I'm going to. Well, and I mm-hmm. we you talked about something in your questionnaire too that I my first career choice was to be, I wanted to be either a mortician or a funeral director, but not for the aspect of like the, this ooky spooky side of it. It was the being able to lead people through their grief in a like nice way of being able to be that, that when they need you in their most bereft time to help them in that way, to be a a guidance. And then I started to learn more about the death positive movement and how so much of our modern day funeral industry is kind of, well, it's mostly male led and it is kind of secretive. And we, in this, in this, in the Western society, the way we grieve and do all that is very much uh, disconnected. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yep from how it used to be. And I love, I like what your work is making people think of um, mortality wise and like end of life and honoring people after they pass. Yeah. So before I got into the jewelry, I thought I wanted to do something with either death doula or, you know, something with like a more hands on with the death or the dying. Sorry. So I volunteered for hospice Oh wow! Uh, for probably about a year, and it it was overwhelming for me, um, yeah. to be honest. Like it just, I've just found myself like I couldn't 
couldn't be there and be as present as I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone always says like, at least you were there, you know, like that's all that matters. But like, I just, I didn't, I felt like I was taking away from the experience by being there. So I wanted to switch into something that still had that aspect of helping people with their grieving and also, you know, getting people to acknowledge mortality earlier so Mm -hmm. that they would be more comfortable with dealing with, you know, ailing grandparents or parents, you know, so it's when you think about it a little earlier, it does not that it becomes more comfortable, but like, right. you know, like, all right, this is coming. Like, you're not in complete denial of it, mm-hmm. you know, when when death it comes a knock in and then it's like, all right, well, ship grandma off to the, you know, the morgue and then we'll see her all pretty and made up, you know, yeah. at, the, at the wake. So. And that's, I worked, um, Jill's a nurse by trade, and so she's had experiences mm-hmm. with this. I worked at a nursing home, well, it was a retirement home, had an assisted and unassisted side. So I watched people pass between the two realms a lot, you know, and experiencing death in the not viewing part of a funeral way. And then I, I have also done hair for my guests that have passed away as like their final. It's lovely. And, oh, thank you. And it's my... My, I always tell the family, I say, if or if I have an elderly client that is, you know, 80s, 90s, I always say to them, I said, I don't know how to broach this with you to make you not think about your own mortality. But when you pass away, I'd be honored to do your hair because the funeral homes charge a, a crazy amount for it, for a viewing. Really? Oh, man. Ooh. It's like over $100 <laughs> to have your hair styled for really? an open casket. I'll look at prices for the curio corner, but I don't charge my guests for it. And I don't let the funeral home pay me because it's it's my final time with that person so that their mm-hmm. family sees the person they know and not the interpretation of a photo from the funeral home. And this is not to say that funeral homes do not do a beautiful job getting somebody ready for that viewing. But mm-hmm. when you spend four years, five years with a client getting to know them yeah, and knowing their hair. So it's, personal. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely. And then I always find myself like, apologizing for like tugging too hard i'm like oops sorry and then i laugh because i'm like "Ah, you can't feel that sorry (laughs) (laughs) but it is it's a it's a beautiful way of like just by final moments with them like yeah it's like absolutely like your final like your hair is your final destination or something like you want to go in looking good yeah yeah and your hair doesn't disintegrate i mean that's why hair jewelry is possible mm-hmm. like i mean if you're going to be in a casket under concrete buried in the ground like you may decay but your hairstyle is going to be there for a while forever so. <laughs> yeah it's true. make sure it looks good right enough hairspray to last a millennia <laughs> <laughs> guaranteed <laughs> that's what they used to guarantee when they sold like the, the coffins like the airtight steel coffins it was like it'll be preserved forever <laughs> yeah which horrifies me I'm yeah like, i'm like no, oh, no thanks like, I want to be worm food like right away. Like. Yeah, I was, I was with my, my grand, I lost a grandmother last year and we were at the funeral and I pull up with my dad and I said, dad, do you know the statistics of how much steel is buried every year because of the funeral industry? And he just looked at me and he's like, please don't. And I was like, sorry, my random Bye factoid. You're like, I just needed to know if you knew. But if you didn't, I'll tell you. Because I'm just going to tell you anyways, whether yeah, you want me I to know. or not. I mean, really, nobody should just question and be like, just tell me. Just tell me what it is. <laughs> yep. When, mm-hmm. you, 
when did you start going from when you were inlaying stuff in copper to the more traditional side of it? What was that switch for you? Well, Instagram has really been kind of like a guiding force for my work in connection with people either in the industry who already know the sentiments or when I first started my Instagram, I was trying to do a bit more like education to teach people, you know, more about why I do it and, you know, the connection with, you know, loved ones and individuals. Because most people, when they see that I make jewelry out of human hair, for some reason, they assume it's stranger's hair. You know, it's always like, oh, like, like a thief in why, the night. Why, why am I buying a locket with somebody's hair? I'm like, oh, no, no. Like, you supply me with your loved one's hair. Mm-hmm. So, like, there was this kind of education element of it in the beginning. And so as I started learning more about, so I, I focused on table braiding at first because that's very kind of almost like mechanical. It's not super artsy. I don't have mm-hmm. to think that much because you're literally just following a pattern mm-hmm. and it was a good way to kind of get started and used to working with hair. Yeah. Um, but then as I started realizing, you know, most people don't have long hair anymore like they did in the Victorian days. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, well, I need to either start offering pieces that are more the palette work, um, a little bit more traditional, mm-hmm. or I'm going to have to just, you know, switch up completely and, and just stick with kind of this modern edgy sentimental stuff. But I didn't really have much success with that. I even tried doing art shows and, you know, doing stuff with pink hair and like, it just didn't fly. So I was like, all right, let's kind of see where it goes. And, Instagram really just connected me with antique lovers and people who love history and they want that, you know, that vibe as well as preserving the old pieces of jewelry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now I've kind of focused on more rescuing old parts or old lockets. Um, I work with a a local antique repair guy that, you know, will add bales on there for me or clean up crystals, you know, so I'm, I'm really trying to like bring back to life old pieces Mm -hmm. and then do the modern hair work and that's really been kind of the guiding force lately is is what people are looking for as i think this death positive movement kind of picks up traction especially with our age range Mm -hmm. that we're starting to see people wanting stuff with grandmother's hair yeah i think Mm -hmm. that the 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 history and the memories and all of that stuff behind it having a memorial piece that's rather like not maybe an urn with grandma in it it's a little more tangible now. And for those, mm-hmm. I just wanted to back up for those people who don't know anything about hair work. What is table work and what is palette work? Sure. Yep. So table work is done with long lengths of hair. Um, I've worked with as little as three inches, which was like oh, a nightmare. God, that sounds terrible. Nightmare. But <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to see if I could do it and it worked, <laughs> but was like many days later. That's but, where like um, the mice on Cinderella, they would three <laughs> inches would be like, they'd be like, this is great. Yep. For right? a nope. person, however, <laughs> no, not so much. Yeah. I know I've, I've had to buy these like ridiculous magnifying like jeweler glasses. <laughs> oh Lord, so yes you do. I can like see mm-hmm. the tiny details. <laughs> but um, so back to the table work. So um, I started with like 18 inches of hair to practice because it is so much about the setup. And so once, I mean, the setup is I have to count out each individual piece of hair um, and put them in little bundles and then knot them off and basically creating like a thread to weave together. So, I mean, 
like I mentioned, it's similar to Kumihimo. So instead of like silk threads, I'm making like bundles of 15 pieces of hair that I'm going to weave together. So all that time put into it, I'm like, well, I'm going to try to braid as long as I can. Mm -hmm. So 18 inches um, was what actually the um, Godey's Ladies Magazine, which is an old journal from the 1860s that came out with patterns and tutorials, recommended you start with. Um, 18 to 24 inches, but wow. I mean, who's got hair that long these days? Right. So um, mainly what I work with is like six inches or longer um, and that you can produce um, cords. So I can do ring bands, you know, that's a solid, it's got a piece of wire that runs through the middle, so it, it'll hold its shape or I braid it. Um, it's Sorry, I guess I should get to it's braided on a table. That's why it's called table work. <laughs> And it's a round table with a hole in the center and you just use count counterbalances and little weights on the ends to just pull the braid down the center. So that gives you this kind of cord looking um, textile basically to make into whatever type of jewelry. Mm -hmm. And you see that primarily and, in like necklaces, bracelets, like if you're looking back at or like the little acorn shapes that you would see on like some adornments and things like that, the open shaped okay. jewelry. Yeah, a lot of brooches that looked mm -hmm. like bows were very popular. It would just be this beautiful, like almost like a little hollow. I say it's like a Chinese finger trap because it has, you could put elastic through it. And it's, I mean, everyone's like, oh, don't you have to treat the hair? But no, I mean, once it's woven together that tightly, I mean, that's why we have pieces that are 200 years old mm -hmm. almost because it's just made so well. Well, and it's hair so is tight. incredibly mm -hmm. strong when it's dry. It is some elasticity when it's wet, but you could really damage the structure of it by stretch overstretching it when it's wet. But dry mm -hmm. hair in a structure like that is, I mean, it could hold a, up to 20 pounds. Wow. Without breaking. That's to me. Yeah. And I actually, after I'm done with the braid, I boil the hair, which is in the instruction books to boil it and then heat set it. So just like when you do, when you mm -hmm. curl your hair, it's actually setting that shape. So if it were to come apart from the finding, you know, the little gold end caps, it's not going to unravel and fall apart. Mm -hmm. Do you so, want you know, to tell you why? why? You the... <laughs> yes, the science. Sam, do you want to My brain can't even, minute. sorry, I interrupted you. My brain can't handle it. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> Perfect. So there's two types of bonds with the hair. There's a permanent bond, which is created with, whether it's with a, like, um, relaxer or a perm, okay? A hydrogen perm or a... Um, Oh, I can't think of the name. Um, oh, a lie relaxer. So what happens is that goes in chemically, rearranges the bonds of the hair and permanently resets them in a different pattern that cannot be damaged by water. But what you're creating by boiling the hair and heat setting it, the heat is key. It's, you're creating a temporary bond called a hydrogen and salt bond. And that happens when we flat iron our hair, curl it, or when uh, olden days you would set it or put it in a pin curl. When you get the hair wet, it breaks those temporary bonds. And when you rewind it around something and then hit it with heat, it sets those hydrogen and salt bonds in a temporary pattern that will stay that way until they are destroyed by the same way they were made, by water or what? heat. That's so bizarre. So that's like when you curl your hair and you either live somewhere it's humid or you go out in the rain or anything like that, that water or humidity will destroy the temporary curl structure or like straight hair that you've created outside of a permanent 
world. Does that make sense? So like a covalent and a hydrogen versus a hydrogen bond. Yes. That's my science brain. There you go. Get on the train. Say, here we go. <laughs> so that's that's interesting that at that time they had figured out, okay, if we boil it, you bring it up to this really high heat, the hair gets a little bit more malleable with heat and then sets it because hair works off of pH and all those things and water can affect that and heat and all those things. So it's a, incredible that they knew, okay, we got to get this boiling hot because at the time they didn't have irons that were mm-hmm. small enough or intricate enough to use for that outside of an oven iron. Right. I'm just imagining. A yeah. Victorian. I think it was all like can- candle powered curlers, right. All mm-hmm. that stuff. So, mm-hmm. and it, yeah, doing a large piece. I mean, what do you, how are you supposed to put that and not to de- de- destroy the shape? Yeah. So let's put it in some hot water. Yeah. And I don't know if they did that with the hair reeds or if it was just with the table work. I'd be curious to ask somebody who does more mm-hmm. with that kind of gimp flower work, the more um, artwork that you see on the wall. Yeah. I don't think that was boiled, but maybe. Maybe I'm they didn't sure. do boiling on that because it wasn't going to be worn and just like oh, yeah. touched. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they steamed it. Oh, they could have. Mm-hmm. We'll call, let's call the Victorian air and ask him. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. There's just so little like mm-hmm. that's been passed down like verbally. It's more like so the Victorian Hair Workers International is a group that I'm part of, and they've really branched out to connect all of us oh, um, okay. through Marvelous. Instagram and Facebook and just help each other grow and, and figure out new techniques. And it's been wonderful. But like we've all learned from books or publications mm-hmm. or from one another, like. I think there is one woman, um, Karen Keenan. Um, I can't remember her Instagram handle. I can share it with you, but she has a Swedish background where her, her lineage, she actually had hair workers in her family, but she didn't know that until her, you know, later years. And so she actually went and studied in Sweden from like the actual, like where the hair workers kind of originated. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, that mm-hmm. tradition, Vamos, um, mm-hmm. I think I'm pronouncing that right, in Sweden. It was um, women, young, younger women that would learn hair work in their village and then branch out. Uh, many of them went to England and oh. worked, you know, on Queen Victoria's pieces, mm, you know. Wow. Like, and so that's why we don't really know hair workers' names or why it was, you know, like we know jewelers. Like we know, you know, those mm-hmm. traditions were passed down by an apprentice and like you knew who you were learning from but hair workers i mean it was pretty much younger women or immigrants or Mm -hmm. african-americans you know people that had this skill but were always in the background right they were laborers Mm -hmm. producing a trade Mm -hmm. and then yeah the jeweler was the one that was showcased as the exceptional one yep rather than surprised me that that doesn't that never got really passed down i don't know anybody so right and then palette work is, is, well, you explain it better than I will. I know what it is, but you do it. What is it? Oh, sure. Yes. Sorry. I keep getting no. sidetracked. No, <laughs> it's fine. okay. This is how those, these episodes go. It's fine. Hop around. Yes. I love it. <laughs> so palette work was one that I didn't really want to get into at first, but then I really saw how it, the, at least the basket weaves and what we, it's like a carrick knot. It's almost like a sailor's knot. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot of those techniques being used with hair. Um, how like it really shows off that it's hair, you know, table work almost disguises 
that it's hair. It's mm-hmm. more of a textile then, but the palette work with the basket weave, you really see the texture of the hair. You see all the highlights and the dis- you know different colors from root to tip. So that's, I only started that maybe two years ago to learn. Um, and again, it was from uh, a book from the 1800s called A Lock of Hair. Mm. And um, it's into the palette work. So what makes palette work palette work is because you're actually working on a palette. Um, and it was either glass. Um, I use like a very smooth marble tile, but you're using some type of adhesive to coat the hair on a very smooth surface. Then you peel it off and then you shape it or cut it. And you can make flower arrangements, you know, these big, beautiful, like wispy curls. Mm -hmm. Um, And then with the basket weave, I'm actually making little, little pieces that I weave together and, you know, tack down. Wow. But, um, yeah. When they first did it, they used like tree resin, didn't they? Like some type of resin. Yes. Um, Gum of Tushmir or Tushmir, Mm -hmm. um, gum Arabic, you know, it was these natural adhesives, um, that they would mix with water to get a, a specific consistency. But, you know, there's, there's no, none of that details like really in the journals. It was more like, this is what you use, figure yeah. it out. Figure it and out. I think that was kind of done intentionally because they wanted you to think that you could do it. And then when you tried it and like, you couldn't do it as it. good as the professionals, yeah. then you'd go to the jewelry store, you know, but mm-hmm. first you had to buy all their equipment. Yeah. So well, in addition yeah. to, these books, they would also sell tables and supplies and scissors, you know, so it was like this but big that one little of- important thing they're not going to tell you, <laughs> which they still do yep. to that today. Yeah. Marketing yeah. wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Right. I'm an open exactly. book. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but except for yeah. that one detail. That's yeah, just part. that one. So you think you know it, but nope. And the same thing with table work. Like there was no mention of what weight to use on the hair. So, I mean, you have to weight the hair down. So, I mean, it says anywhere from one to four ounces, but like, I find that's way too much. So, I mean, yeah. I'm using like three quarters of an ounce to weight the hair. Oh, wow. So like, I'm like, did they do that on purpose or like maybe just cause the hair was longer mm-hmm. or maybe the sure weights exactly. and measurements weren't as regulated. Yeah, maybe. I don't, but it's all the, spe- the all yeah. the Victorian speculation. <laughs> So if anybody from that Victoria <laughs> land could, <laughs> could tell us. us, do you mm-hmm. see yourself branching into gimp work at all? I've tried it. Um, I, the um, Victorian Hairworkers International hosts a conference. And unfortunately, we've only had one because of COVID. Mm-hmm. It's canceled last year and canceled this year. But hopefully there'll be one next year out at Lee Eilis Hair Museum in Kansas City. Oh, it's a de- dream destination. For me, yes, you got to go. She's, she's getting a little older. Too? Yeah, well, it's this yeah, wonderful woman who started collecting hair work way before it was posh, and she didn't have anywhere to display it. She had so much of it that she just decided to open her own like museum of hair work. Yeah, she has thousands upon thousands of pieces. Like, she's just, just like yeah, anything she found. It doesn't matter the condition. She just would buy it and save it. Mm-hmm. This is my this is my Metropolitan Art Museum. I was gonna say, right? I'll just leave you be, and I'll go shopping, All right. and then I'll come back and get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, there's not much shopping around there except for <laughs> Goodwills. But... You have a nap in the car. <laughs> I know. I'll find some. You two just do <laughs> oh, your yeah. thing. I'll take care of myself. It's fine. All right. <laughs> I might be drunk by the time you guys come out, but it's fine. That's okay. Oh yeah, you can definitely find the bars. That's yeah, for sure. there That's you go. I'll be. <laughs> You'll find a happy hour. And we'll find our happy hour. I know. 
<laughs> I was curious. Yeah, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. It, this, uh, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with Zoom is there's no way to see somebody take a breath before they go to talk. I know. So you're just like, hut, 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 hut. It's like when you meet somebody on, like you're going towards <laughs> them and then like you go the same way and you're like, no, you go, no, you go. Have to be all the time. Yeah. The, the floor is yours. <laughs> it means you can't hear me breathing on this. I, I feel know. like, I like every take breath. Some, right. <laughs> so getting back to the conference. Yes. For all who are really interested in hair work, um, check out Victorian Hair Workers International, but hopefully we'll have the conference. I'm not sure if they're going to do a virtual this year or not, but that's where um, they kind of teach a little bit about each method. Mm. So the first year I taught the table braiding um, and then Bridget Graham taught a good amount of the palette work and Leila kind of came in as well. And then the gimp work, which was just a disaster for me. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just not coordinated enough. There is like a rhythm I think you have to get used to. So maybe if I kept at it, mm-hmm. but um, it's not high on my priority list because I still have so much to learn with table work yeah. that I could spend the rest of my life focusing on that and not having time for anything else. Yeah. Which I, yeah, I think it's one of those things like when people that knit or crochet or even lace making, it's, it's never something you fully master. You become really, really, it's same with hairdressing. You can become really, really great in one area of it, but really not so beautiful in any other part of it. Cause you're just trying to get all the idiosyncrasies down. Well, that I think one that's skill. with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you can do that with any, like you can be super smart and educated in one area, mm-hmm. but then like you'll try something else and it's like total flop. And it's like, okay, I'm not good at anything. So, but. <laughs> that's right. yep. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what's lovely about the hairs and you know, like each person's head is so different. Yeah. I mean, you're looking for the dips and the dives and the, mm-hmm. you know, everything to shape it properly. You know, and every time I get hair, it's like, different coarseness, different lengths, you know, like there's just no, like, I don't know. I really haven't found the perfect hair. Yet. I was just going to ask, is there a better hair for table work and palette work that you like using? Or is it just like, whatever you can do, whatever. Um, I mean, I've worked with, you know, black hair, mixed race. I've worked with white hair. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter with the table work. Um, the texture, it's all about the length and the consistency because it's so stretched out that when it's at that point, like you can do whatever you want with it. So with that, it's, you know, I can work with pretty much any hair as long as it's not brittle. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I get envelopes, you know, of grandma's hair from 1930s that's like disintegrating and I'm like, like it's going to be really hard to work with this but Mm -hmm. as long as it's well cared for and it still has that elasticity to it like it's i can work with pretty much anything for the table work Mm -hmm. the palette works a little bit harder because it is so the finer the hair is the easier it is to work with because it's a single layer of single strands yeah it's just wild well and i was listening to you explain hair for table work knowing hair structurally so the longer hair is, so, okay, this is going to get sciencey for two seconds because my mind is trying to roll it around. So if you think of Victorian era hair, okay, you have two feet of hair, right? That two mm-hmm. feet of hair could span the time of five to 10 years, depending on somebody's growth. The further hair gets away from its original growth point of the head, the harder it gets, the more keratinized it gets. Meaning towards Ooh. the end, the more brittle it gets. So if you see people with really long hair where the ends look really tattered and brittle, 
It's because the hair is so hard, keratinized, that it's starting to break. It's no longer, uh, the protein structure's changed. It's just different than what's molecularly than what's coming out of the head brand new. So think of, this is a weird example, but have you ever left a spaghetti noodle on the stove? And that like parts of it will be drier than other parts, right? It'll be like whatever yes. was closest Depending to the pot. Yeah. Close to the burner. Yep. Mm-hmm. Think of that as on your head. Closest to the original source of water is softer and more plump. Where the further away and the drier it gets, it gets smaller and harder. That same kind of thing happens on your head. So to think of now you add different textures, which are structurally different from race to race, person to person, which I won't get into that. And the fact that you could still work the same two feet of hair in the same way, structurally, it just blows my mind knowing those differences of uh, structure in the hair. Yeah. And that's why like some braids work out like super well. And then the next one I'm doing the same exact stuff and it just like gets a little wonky and I kind of have to, you know, rework it a little bit Mm -hmm. and, you know, just reposition. But yeah, I never thought about that because yeah, when I do the table work, like it's always like wider at the ends versus when I first start. Mm -hmm. So I think it's because it's more pliable in the beginning so I can form these nice tight braids. And then as I go along, it's just that drier pieces Mm -hmm. just don't weave together as nicely so well and then i mean modern day you're welcome (laughs) modern day (laughs) we're all learning today sorry (laughs) modern day hair damage aside i mean the victorian era they were not using heat as much as we're using heat they were not using hair color like hair color that we're using it was very natural based hair coloring if any at all Mm -hmm. and it wasn't because anything you do with the hair chemically if it's permanently opens the hair raises the ph opens hair shuts the hair raises those little shingles we have on the outside that's the cuticle layer which makes your work that much more difficult than it would have been in the victorian era because back then everything was just getting braided and thrown in a hairstyle that way it wasn't getting washed every day it wasn't getting styled every day anyways yeah i I often wonder about like the hair dyes because you know they use such toxic dyes on their clothing so Mm -hmm. sometimes i wonder because that's that's one of the questions i get when i'm talking more about the history of hair work when i I used to do some little lectures before coven hopefully i'll do them again but um that's always a question like why why is there so much brown hair Mm -hmm. and like why is the blonde hair so you know hard to find why don't you see much black hair it's always that very consistent brown Mm -hmm. and i think it was because they dyed their hair so often like that was the trendy color Mm -hmm. to dye your hair well Um, it was also i I don't know anything about like the what it was made of or anything so well and blonde hair at that time was a little more rare than being a brunette like naturally pale blonde and that's Mm -hmm. that's a whole other episode of why hair color is different (laughs) yeah why (laughs) hair color is different and why it's different based on your location and okay. things like that. But they were probably using to color their hair at that time, henna based dyes, um, probably dyes from like walnuts, because you can make black walnut mm. dye, different like things like that. But also, depending on the pH of what they were dyeing their hair with would have been dependent on the level of tone you would have received. I'll look it up. Mm. But okay. 
let me know because it's all fascinating to me. Yeah, if you ever have any like <laughs> hair questions that way, send them my way because that's when I worked for an educator for six years uh, for a company as an educator. The big thing behind that company was the science behind the hair and why their products worked the way they did. So I got like a Ooh. crash course in chemistry. Care, yeah, hair chemistry, which I love. It's yeah. my favorite, yeah. obviously. <laughs> I would have never guessed. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> okay, I have a random question for you, though. Do you get hair splinters often? Oh, they suck. Sam gets them every time she gets my hair. Yeah. <laughs> Jill's got to be an end-of-the-day haircut. I was just listening to your, your interview, Jill, on uh, before this, because I was like, all right, I got to spy on these girls. <laughs> and how you were talking about how her hair just, like, springs off the scissors. Huh? Like, <laughs> killed mm-hmm. me. I was like, oh, my God. But, uh, no, I've never gotten hair splinters. Oh, okay. Um, mainly because I'm not really cutting the hair like super fine. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a hair work technique um, that used to be done called sepia, which they would mix. They basically would macerate hair like into teeny tiny little splinters and then mix it with sepia paint. And then they would litter and um, again, the, the adhesives and they would paint. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the not a lot, but some of the morning scenes you see from the Georgian era where they look like little paintings, often have hair within them. Oh, cool. So I, I haven't tried that yet. I would maybe love to someday, but I can imagine that would lead to some splinters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like if Just you dealing with all those tiny it, pieces. That. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. I love yeah. showing these to people and going, that's pigment made from hair. It doesn't dissolve into it, so you still get like a little... Um, I forget what they call it in painting with its the dots, you know, you get that stippling or whatnot, oh, yeah. which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. And this, this question is mostly just because of my curious brain. Can you tell us about some of the stories behind some of the pieces you've made without revealing too much of somebody's personal history? Like what's one piece you've created that really touched you? Sure. Um, I think it was last Christmas and this, it's heartbreaking. I've had to kind of, meditate i've had to meditate and learn some like boundary courses and you know Mm -hmm. therapy to be able to separate myself from some of the hard stuff i get from people because it you know doing a morning piece is about the grieving process you know Mm -hmm. that's why i do it because they can't really go out and talk to their families so much or people at work about how much they're hurting yeah so i do get a lot of stories and I've, i've started asking people as well, like send me photos of your loved ones, you know, that have passed because I want to be able to know their energy and, mm-hmm. you know, feel what you feel and connect with them. And it's, it's really been a, a great part of just the past year of kind of incorporating that. And then also seeing if people are interested in, in me sharing on my Instagram, their stories. And it always amazes me. Like, they're like, Oh yes, I love that. You know, like, please share my loved one's story. I um, love that so- addition to your Instagram. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Cause that's really why I do it is the stories, you know, like we're, there's no humanity without stories, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause otherwise we just live and die. But like we're immortal through these jewel, you know, pieces of jewelry and the stories we tell. Yeah. And so, especially for young people, I, I do get a decent amount of mothers who've lost children and it's usually sons now that I think about wow. it. Um, but you know, there, there's some more daughters recently, but, um, the first one that really broke my heart was a, a woman who lost her son. Um, I think he was 13 to suicide. Mm. And, you know, she just like, she blasted my feed with his pictures and was telling me all about him. And like, I just couldn't believe that she was willing to share so much with a stranger, 
you know, and then they send me their hair, you know, that's so like, it always blows my mind. I always try to tell people like, I have a very specific system for filing my hair. Like I make sure like each person, you know, so there's no mix up basically. And then I give them very specific instructions for mailing to make sure nothing gets lost in the mail. Cause you know, it's, this is a piece of your loved one. This is not replaceable, Yeah, you know? So when this woman contacted me and she just had one little tiny curl from her son and I was like, well, you don't have to mail it all to me, but like it would, it makes the better hair piece if I do have more of it. So, and, and she was just so bereaved that she couldn't even design a piece. Wow. She wanted me to just design it for her. So she just sent a couple inspiration images, Georgian pieces with the pearls. And um, then later on the early 1800s with the little gold spirals that I made a piece for her. Wow. Um, and then there was a little bit left over. I, I made a, a tie tack for her husband as well. So, but yeah, that was the, the freedom of creativity with that piece. And that was the first time somebody really opened up about the person's story. Wow. So that one really sticks with me. So that one was a hard one. Yeah. But that, then, well, it's a lot of, a lot of different energies passing through your hands. Mm-hmm. In, you know, harboring them in a, in a safe space that that energy is maintained <clears throat> and then returned to sender with that same love and appreciation is just beautiful. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if my cat can like sense the other people's energies. I mean, I don't know what I believe spiritually. I'm kind of a open to everything sort of person. Mm-hmm. Same, but same. sometimes I wonder because she just kind of comes and like, sits by me sometimes and I'm like you know because cats always tend to go to the bedside of people passing in nursing homes you know you hear those stories Mm -hmm. so like I wonder if she knows so yeah I think that they know more than we give them credit for oh yeah especially when they stare in the corner the corner of the room when you're like what 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 are you looking at you know (laughs) I hate that when my dogs do that and I'm like shit what's here what's here Go away. Yeah, there's some kind of ghost. <laughs> I'm busy. Not right now. Not I'm baking. Right now. They're good ghosts, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where can our listeners find your work? Um, mainly Instagram because I am just social media overwhelms me and I'm terrible at Same. posting and Same. I'm just more of an in-person person. Mm-hmm. So like hopefully once COVID's kind of passed, like I was touring, I did a little bit with um which is the Oddities Market, uh-huh. not the one, not the big ones in New York, but um, Oddity and Expo. Mm-hmm. I did some with them and just did some lectures. I've actually taught a hair work class in a mausoleum wow. in North Carolina. Was that the one you did with Hayden? Amazing. I didn't teach with Hayden, but I was like, I need Hayden to come here. Mm-hmm. So I was like, Hayden, would you like to teach in a mausoleum? And he was like, absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, who would ever think to come to North Carolina, like from Australia, like mm-hmm. you're going to go to the big cities, you know, right. it's like Raleigh, North Carolina teaching. <laughs> but he, he said that was his biggest lecture ever. I mean, there was wow. got to be over 50 people because wow. Southerners, like they love their traditions. I mean. They hold on to the bad shit and the good shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that, was, that was a life lesson moving here. I'll tell you that. But that's another story for another day. But, yeah, uh, I can't imagine. Anyways, so <laughs> Instagram is where you can find me. Um, maybe someday on YouTube if I just get my shit together to do some videos. We'll just but, politely yeah. bully you behind the scenes to do that. Yeah, you can YouTube. try. People have been doing it for years. It's <laughs> <She's laughs> like including my, it. my boyfriend who is my boyfriend's a uh, sound engineer and he's all into recording and like 
I could have had a much better quality podcast today if if I had you know he was around, but he's working this weekend. But uh, this is perfect. Um, he bugs me. He's like, I can just set up and you can just record. So <laughs> you're like, it's, it's it'll not come. that it'll come. easy. <laughs> Uh, like I have to get my nerves together first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of bullying, it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's the worst part. Of the estates the... I walk through. <laughs> yeah. And this was this was a difficult one to write. Good. I'm glad you that. struggled. Well, <laughs> so we we borrowed. There's a question here. We borrow from Hayden's walkthrough. Yes. Because I have to know. But today we are in your neck of the woods. Shopping at a flea market. And I didn't include any jewelry in this except for the end question. Yeah. yeah however, I don't. So I don't ever see the question, the Mm-mm. walkthrough. So I like to be. Oh, surprised. really? Yeah. <laughs> because then I just dwell on it the mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah. But then I was like mm-hmm. glancing at it while we're doing this interview. And I'm just like, what? What, what did Why I do? Why do I piss you <laughs> off? Every week. <laughs> Every time I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be easy because I no. Never, yep. never. Nope. It's because you're so easy to get. That's why. That's, what, that's why I torture my friends mm-hmm. like, because I know their reaction. Yes. <laughs> it's all intentional. It makes for good entertainment. <laughs> I know my friends are always like, "I love it." Your reaction. I never know which one I'm gonna get, and I'm like, you know what? You guys shut up. Just leave me be. Don't encourage her. <laughs> me, me, me. So the first booth we come to is just baskets everywhere galore. Hmm. Do you choose between three woven baskets that nest and are meant to store things or three various flat wicker and tobacco baskets? Ooh, this is tough. I think it depends on the patina of them, you know, like <laughs> they're your perfect it's whatever patina. you want, whatever you that's, imagine. That's my interior designer. Like, Oh, ooh, I can hang baskets on the wall. I, I know. I am the same. That's the way. angle of this estate sale walkthrough is coming at you from your initial career. Mm-hmm. Which is my dream career. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I hate mm-hmm. you so now. Um, <laughs> I am going to pick the nesting baskets. Those are my... Because I garden and I take my baskets out with me to gather and bring stuff home. There's a lot of oh, baskets in my house. A yard. <laughs> it's a problem. I, I'd go with the more decorative, the flat ones. I yeah, think. that's what I'm thinking mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Collage them on the walls. Yes, all my that's other what I. Weird yep, stuff. Yep, that's yeah. what, exactly what I was thinking too. Oh gosh, sorry, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> the next part is is a two-parter. Okay, this next booth is all things vintage and antique lighting. Okay. Do you choose to pick from wall sconces or pendant lamps? Pendant lights. Which one in which pile? I'm going to go. Don't look at the next part. I know. (laughs) I'm going to go pendants. Okay. Gina. I think pendants too. Just, Just thinking like how many pendants I could hang up in my house now. I don't have any wall sconces. Okay. And I rent, so I, I can't put any holes oh, in the wall. True. So. I'm going to pick wall sconces because uh, I like to put holes in my walls. Jill's house yes. is still too I, new. I know. Mine's still new. <laughs> I still need to lay. Wall la- sconces are the best. I know. I'm laying everything out, and I just hold it there forever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, I don't know 
So the pendant choices are between a white glass like the opaline with brass or a Murano art glass pendant. (laughs) It's Easter. You're welcome. Mm. Happy Easter. (laughs) Like the vibe of my house is does have a little more mid-century just because like that's what I could afford furniture wise, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so that would feel more in what I have going. But I mean, Murano glass is just handmade. You can't beat it. One of a kind. It's like, but uh, it is visually impactful. It takes up. I know. That's the thing. (laughs) Whatever. It's like my perfect perfect. choice. (laughs) That's the one I'm going to go with. Okay. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And Just mine, I'll make mine hard. The sconces, I have to choose between Art Deco or Art Nouveau. Is that hard for oh, you though, Sam? That's hard. This hard. <laughs> I have some, Riley found me some Art Nouveau wall sconces that are black. Ooh, cute. That I have, but um, I'm going to go Art Deco for this because I want them to go in this bathroom in my brain you have a specific spot yeah I, that's how I have to pick I have to put it somewhere to be like does this work here I know but that's yep. the problem I can find a place for any of this mm-hmm. and then this last one is um, we borrowed this one from Hayden if you could have any piece of hair art made for you what would you have made you didn't have to make it you could have anything made mm. in the Victorian era I should say so you're in the you're in the we time traveled you have, the, okay. you have the pick of the litter. We went through Bill and Ted's mm-hmm. adventure. Yep. We borrowed their phone booth. It's tough. Um, I think I'd want to broach something big and obnoxious because you can't get away with those so much today. I mean, mm-hmm. I love people who like make collages of brooches on their shirt and look fabulous, but I just, I can't pull that off. And probably right. my hair will be stuck in them. And yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> because Victorian era big dresses, big sleeves. I want a big brooch. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the bows that have all the loops and yeah. I'd want like a loop of each family members. Oh, and then maybe oh. some palette work in the center with like the men's hair. So maybe my dad's and my brother's. Oh, see, this is perfect. Whoa, that was, we picked... I want it to be sentimental. Yeah. That was yeah. Good. What would you pick now, Joe? I want a painting. <gasps> yeah. I know. Threw you on that one. You did. (laughs) Mine is still the um, like gimp work kind of diorama. Yeah. With a in a bell jar. That's my like forever. If I could have something made, it would be. Have you tried making gimp work before? It's on my list. I have some bundles of hair in my collection that I have these three braids of hair that are from the 1920s. And I mm-hmm. speculate just because of the type of hair that one is juvenile and the other one is definitely of an older woman, like our age. Mm-hmm. And I have that. And then I have this hair from a friend, too, that I'd love to create something with. Yeah, that'd make some good stuff. Yeah, I should set up something here. But it's like one of those things where it's like that has to be a wintertime activity for me because I'm very busy mm-hmm. with gardening and stuff in the summertime that I couldn't I, I would not have time to sit and devote what I needed to to it so maybe i'll do that this next winter i don't know yeah and you got to come to the the hair work conference oh man that's on the list for sure of even just traveling by myself to go to that and to just eat it all up and to see how people to watch it be done would just be 
Oh yeah, you chef's totally kiss. Yeah. Go by yourself. Chef's That's what kiss. I did. I stayed in an Airbnb out there for like thirty bucks, and it was oh. this old creepy home. And I was like, "This is so perfect. <laughs> this is the best." <laughs> the ghosties and the mm-hmm. hair and all the creepy stuff. And nope. I'm by myself, so of course I slept with the lights on. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the shank under your pillow. It's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. thank you so much. We'd love to have you back. Um, on yes, for sure. In any capacity, really, to pick your brain some more. This was absolutely fabulous. Yeah, thank you, ladies, so much. I love talking about this stuff, and I, I just appreciate all that you do and connecting people and just introducing all these weird things out into the world again. So, yeah, I can't wait for till the next time. Yes, I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. <laughs> to hear a little bit more about what we talked today in Gina's episode, be sure to stick around for the Curio Corner. Well, hello, Jill. Well, hello, Sam. <laughs> We are recording this week's Curio Corner from our respective homes in our jammies. We are. Because that's, that's how we do it most of the time. Yes. And, you know, because of the pandemic, they've made it more accessible for mm-hmm. us to do this stuff. We've really gotten great at it over the course of the show. Yeah, I feel like I'm slightly above amateur level when it comes to this. Yeah, I agree with that. Not expert, not even close to it, but just a little above. And I just know how to just like not show any fear. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I got it. And my brain is like the most anxious. My friend shared this TikTok with me the other day and it was like hairdresser anxiety. And I was like, who took a video of me? The amount of times I get a text message from somebody like within 24 hours of their appointment, I just panic before opening it. I'm like, they hate their hair. They're calling. Hello. And I just panic. And then I open it. They're like, it's so great. And I'm like, yeah, it's right. It's great. I can't. Thank you very much. Uh, uh. I know you don't show that fear in your eye anymore. When you ask me which side I part my hair on anymore. I have quite the side. No, it's the other. Oh, I know that. Yeah, and I'm a son of a. And then I just leave. I do um have some clients though where I just like I do. I still look in the mirror at them, and I'm like, <laughs> I said, I'm like, is it this side? I'll do it. Okay, I've looked at my father's face for 31 years, <laughs> and I will still because I see I'm having pointed to the mirror, and I'm like looking, and I'm like, is it? Is it this side or is it this side? <laughs> and then he just looks at me and I was like, I'm not asking for your judgment, Jeffrey. <laughs> I just need to know where you part your goddamn hair. I just cannot remember when you're not looking at me. Yeah. Okay. But I can't, before we get into the curio corner for today's guest with all the hair involved, I couldn't imagine having to keep that shit straight. First of all. Oh man. No. Wow, that's already stressing me out. Before we get too deep into Miss Gina's curio today, we have some exciting changes and announcements that will be happening soon. And the Patreon will be getting all of the sneak peeks and the full reveal before it launches everywhere else. So if you are not a member of the Patreon and you would like to be, where can they find that, Jill? You know, they can go to our bio. There's a link there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they can go to themothballprophecies.com. Mm-hmm. Both sites, both places have it and they have, we've got different tiers. 
Yes. For whatever flavor you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And with this. Every tear has a little. Perfect little, perk. Yeah. And with this change, all of the current Patreon users will get a redo sort of of their initial perks. Yes. Yes, they will. And we're very excited. The totes are going to be back. A little bit of a different design on them this time. Yes. Super cute. This is how we originally envisioned all this. Mm -hmm. We'll leave you with, if you want mothball merch, now is the time to get it. Because it's limited at this point. Time's a ticking. Time, time's a ticking. <laughs> I was, <laughs> um, we're very excited. Um, we'll obviously explain more once the reveal happens. We'll explain it to our Patreon members first. You guys will get the scoop on uh, the whys, the hows, and the wins of all of this. Mm-hmm. We've been in the process of this since November. Ooh, has that been that long? Yeah, it's been since November, but we can both say without a shadow of a doubt that it's perfection. Yes, it's perfection. definitely chef kisses on this. So yes, if you want to be a member of our Patreon, I highly encourage you to do that as soon as possible. We are very good to our Patreon members. You get bonus content with some certain tiers. You get a live cocktail hour with Jill and I where it's just a laid back chat. We have bonus episodes planned for the future with previous guests. If you, I, A lot of people have been asking me where my grandma's episode is and my grandma's episode's on the Patreon. Because mm-hmm. she's a real special, special lady. So she is. I wanted to give her a special spot to put that. And so if you ever, if you want to listen to my grandma's story and how we got to where we're at with the show, check out the Patreon. I think that's all for Patreon Corner today. <laughs> Let's move on to the Curio Corner. Boop, boop, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> well, I was uh, absolutely tickled pink when I got the email notification that there was a form submission on our website. On the on our website, the Mothball Prophecies, there's a place for you to submit your story to us about your curio if you want to tell us about your family or if you want to reach out to us. And when I read who it was from and what it was, I was like, oh, my God. I And I hear that at the beginning of this episode. But I still I'm still kind of reeling from the recording and like I at work this week looked at hair differently a little bit after mm-hmm. seeing like what she works with and how little she works with. Yeah. The, the amount that she gets sometimes I'm just like, Whoa, I think my eyes would fall out of my head and my fingers would just like bleed trying to get such little hair into artwork. I know. I just want to be like a little fly on the wall to watch how she gets the pieces ready to turn into the art and yeah. i was it's funny this is a little sidebar city joe had her hair appointment this week and they really do try to not make the hair appointment all about the show and just make it jill's hair appointment like it was in yesteryears <laughs> but every time jill is in the salon everybody that i work with and everybody that's around cannot believe how much hair you have on your head yeah and every time i just want to be like stop it she's just <laughs> getting her hair done it's okay. Yeah, because we cut it super short in the summer. Uh, we clippered the sides. Let's not yeah, be. Yeah, we. <laughs> we cut, we shaved the sides of her head <laughs> off. And literally the amount we shaved off of her head and what was left on top of her head was what is on my head on a good day. 
So no, but yeah. So, and I do this like every what three years, two, three years, I need a chop off, Mm -hmm. start over. And so then in October I was like, all right, that was fun. I'm going to grow it back out. And now it's the, (laughs) it's funny that the shave parts are now even with just about it all. Mm -hmm. It's like on one side, there's like a little bit of like a half inch overhang, but that's it. Like everything else is caught up and I've had to trim the back of her hair every haircut so that the sides can catch up so i've cut while growing it out at least two and a half inches to three inches off of your hair yeah to save you from having the world's most glorious mullet because i love you too much for that i'm not doing that to you thanks so much so it's just funny everybody's hair everybody's like your hair's already this long i've been growing my hair out for three years Mm -hmm. it's barely this and i'm like um good genetics I don't thank you. Also, your hair can take a beating. It can. Because it's coarse and it's thick and it's all that good stuff. So it, if you, and yeah, it can, you could take anything and throw it at your hair and it'd be like, and what? Excuse <laughs> you? Walking hair. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you tap me? I can't. Did you need me? But I was like, we, on top of talking about hair, and how she makes it in this episode. She name dropped so many different collectibles and antiques. So many. She was like the perfect um, combination of you and me. Yes. It was like if you and I had a child, it would be Gina. (gasps) Oh, our little genie meanie. We'll take equal parts me and you, put it in a shaker, pour it out in this cutie little thing. And then a cute little thing came out. Well, actually, we'll shake it in some crackle glass. So we'll yes. put it in. We've got to do that. We talked about Crackle Glass in this episode. I had seen it, never heard about it, as per usual, right? Right. We need a shirt that says, I've seen it, but I didn't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> and this is from another person that I'm like, man, we should have her on the show. Um, Adirondack Girl at Heart. I've used her articles. She has some really great informative articles on her website, like, She'll have something about how to identify and then the value. And two, like she'll have two or three articles dedicated to one genre of antique. I got last week in Megan's episode, I got the yellowware, stoneware stuff from that. I've uh-huh. pulled stuff from it in the past. It's so great. It's really well written and um, easy to understand. Where sometimes when we read on like Wikipedia or something like that, it's just so much information at once. But, anyways. So crackle glass we talked about on here and it originated in the 17th century, but the technique did, but most of the pieces you're probably familiar with and coming across were made from the twenties to the 1970s. And they were made by primarily five companies. There was Pilgrim, Rainbow, Blenco, Burkhoff and Kanawa, but Burkhoff and Kanawa, there's a couple in there that are still making crackle glass today, Hmm. but not all of them. And they would take a vessel of hot glass in various shapes, whether it was a vase, pitcher, a cup, and they would blow it out to the shape it needed to be. And then they would take it and dip it into cold glass. And we all know what cold water or cold does to glass when it's warm, right? Right. It cracks it. And then they would reheat the piece, semi kind of melting all of those pieces back together, but and smoothing the surface out, resealing them and making it still have the cracked appearance, but it was safe to handle and use. And then crackle glass 
comes in a variety of different colors. There's cobalt blue, amethyst, cranberry, ruby red, tangerine, and gray. But the gray and the ruby cost the most to produce, probably for what the minerals are mixed in to make those two colors. Right. And the most popular color is amberina, which we've all seen amberina glassware in almost every glassware company. And then once the vessel is blown, the artisan then blows a handle and attaches it to the piece. The handle looks different depending on the desired look. So there's some with like striated kind of spiky star handles, two smooth tubes to a technique called a blob, which kind of looks like a coffee handle. If you've ever had like a hand thrown pottery mug. Oh, yeah. Kind of looks like that. When identifying crackle glass in the wild, flip the piece over and look at the bottom for the pontial mark. It's a jagged circle shape, open circle, like a spaghettio, left on this piece after they break it off the steel rod that's called the pontial. That's what they shape it on. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, depending on the artisan, that pontial edge, that rough circle will be polished off. But if you hold the glass up to the light and look through the bottom of the vessel, you would be, you'll be able to see a little bit of a darker coloration of a circle where it was connected to the pontial. Because there's that little bit of concentration of glass right there. And that is called ground pontial, that mark. But much like any vintage item, keep your eye out for repops because there's a lot. Fake crackle. There's a lot. One of fake ones out there. And still being made. I mean, you can even find acrylic crackle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere. So when you're out in the wild and you're looking fake crackle will have no pontial marks whatsoever, but they could have mold marks like some depression glass. Mm -hmm. So have that seam kind of on them or the rim will be sharper as it's not blown glass. It was cut and shaped out of the mold. So the rim will be a little sharper because it's been kind of ground down and real crackle crackle glass will sometimes like ring when you hit it kind of like crystal, but not as definite as crystal. And It will also, crackle glass was meant to be the most vibrant in the sun, like a sun catcher. Oh. So, and artificial crackle glass will not shine as brilliantly. I thought that was really interesting. And those are some great tips to have like out in the wild if you're looking for it. And the resale is anywhere from $5 to $20, depending on the size, age, and color of the piece. Wow, that's pretty inexpensive. Right? I was surprised. And they're small. They're anywhere from like three to four inch bud vases to 10 inch vases. Yeah. Um, and they get bigger than that. But I mean, if you wanted like a cute little windowsill collection. Uh, yeah. And, and we've all passed on them. Yeah. In estate sales. Cause we're like, yeah. Cause I always thought it was like something that was like newer mm-hmm. and not vintage. Yeah. Same. Well, yeah, I've seen it everywhere and it's, I guess, you know, it's just, not one of my things but i could see where because her grandmother was collecting the crackle glass that like that i bet my grandma has a piece somewhere in her house oh i bet bet. i'm for sure she does um but yeah that was totally interesting um another thing she mentioned which okay let's all face it i'm not that big of a history buff Mm -hmm. but she mentioned um the civil war and um, Jenny Wade being the only civilian to die in the Civil War. Which I could not believe. Which, when you think about it, like wars nowadays, it, that's like unheard of. Really? Because, yeah. Um, 
But I found this article on battlefields.org. Um, on July 1st, 1863, the Union and Confederate armies converged at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. There, there the opposing com combatants engaged in the bloodiest battle ever fought on American soil. Bullet holes riddled houses, buildings of all make were turned into makeshift hospitals to deal with the influx of wounded and the dead began to pile up. Amongst the chaos, residents of Gettysburg sought any shelter that they could in an attempt to protect themselves from the deadly small armies and artillery fire. Unfortunately, the town was not unscathed as a portion of the borough sat on the front lines. On the morning of July 3rd, near 8.30 in the morning, Mary Virginia Jenny Wade was shot dead while kneading dough in her sister's kitchen on East Cemetery Hill. She was the only civilian killed by fire during the Battle of Gettysburg. Wow. Jenny Wade was born in Gettysburg 20 years prior. Her family most likely referred to her as Jenny or Jen, but printing errors after the war resulted in a variant spelling of her nickname being widely distributed. So they had, they stated that she was probably G-I-N-N-I-E. Uh-huh. And so then the when the printing came out, it got changed to J-E-N-N-I-E, oh, which happens. Yeah. Um, she was one of six children. She helped earn money for the family by becoming a seamstress with her mother, Mary Ann Philby Wade. Her father, Captain James Wade Sr., was often absent from home and spent more time in jail than with the family. Which on that point, I was like, could we like go down that? Like, why yeah. was he in jail? <laughs> what was he doing? Like, was he a guard or was he, like, in jail? I'm going to say he was in, in jail. I, jail. You know, probably. All the way in it. <laughs> Down below. Mm -hmm. um, Jenny may have become engaged to her childhood friend, Johnson Jack Skelly, before the war since she had a photo of him in her pocket when she died. However, there was no official engagement announcement or a wedding before he enlisted in the 87th Pennsylvania Infantry where he served as a corporal. Georgia Ann, Jenny's sister, who was known as Georgia, also became engaged before the war and married her sweetheart in 1862. The couple moved into a two-story red brick house at 548 Baltimore Street, Gettysburg, the house that later became known as the Jenny Wade House. Mm. Her husband joined the Union Army as a private and was not in Gettysburg during the Battle of Gettysburg. He was also absent for the birth of their firstborn son on June 26, 1863. Four days after the birth, General John Buford's Union Calverman rode into Gettysburg. A day later, Jenny and her mother moved into George's house to care for her and her newborn son and to hopefully be safe from the impending battle. While the Union Army was in Gettysburg, bullets pelted the side of their house. One bullet flew through the window of the house and hit the bedpost of the bed Georgia was lying in with her days old son. Jeez. And, yeah, right? Wow. An, an artillery shell also crashed through the roof and remained in the house for 15 years, fortunately never detonating. Whoa. Yeah. Creepers, creepers. On the morning of July 3rd, Jenny awoke early to fetch water and knead dough to make bread and biscuits. The dough which she was kneading was destined to become bread for the soldiers. 
Unfortunately, a bullet flew through the two closed doors and hit her in the shoulder. It lodged itself in her heart and got trapped in her body by the corset she was wearing. Uh. She died instantly. The dough that Jenny was kneading at the time of her death was also later baked into bread by her mother. It made 15 loaves and was distributed to the Union soldiers. Union soldiers helped wrap her body in a quilt and either brought her to the cellar or buried her in the backyard immediately. She was moved to towns to she was moved to the town's German Reformed Church in November 1865. And her body was eventually moved to Evergreen Cemetery, the site where President Abraham Lincoln delivered the Ed- Gettysburg Address. In 1900, the tireless efforts from Georgia Jenny was given a large gravestone and a perpetual raised American flag. It is the one of few sites in the United States with a perpetual raised flag in honor of a woman. (gasps) Unknown to Jenny, her presumed fiance, Jack Skelly, died nine days later from wounds sustained in the Second Battle of Winchester in June of 1863. Oh, my God. Jenny was treated to a hero's... Jenny was treated as a hero after her death for dying in the service to her country. George's house became a tourist destination to those who visited Gettysburg Battlefield and is known as the Jenny Wade House today. In 1882, her mother successfully petitioned the government to grant her pension for her daughter's death. Get that bag, mom. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so there's still like um that like they said there's the Jenny Wade house like museum that's part of the Gettysburg tours. Mm-hmm. And um and then we'll give you like the history and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that used that was actually her sister's house. Wow. That um they were hunkering down in during the battle. I am also a little flabbergasted that they still made the bread. Just like, well, somebody's got to make the bread. They're, these soldiers are gonna. Die. Or they're I, sitting, or they're sitting there and be like, so, um, like, what do we do with this? I hate to ask, but I'm super hungry. Right, and then well, then when you said 15 loaves, I was like, damn. I know, like, I just imagine like this big like bowl. <laughs> just- mm-hmm. And this was uh, before mixers. Yeah. So she was ripped. You know, her arms were just like, wow. And then you said Jack Skelly, and I was like, Jack Skellington? Oh, I don't know. That is, um, I am a little miffed that I've never heard that story, ever. Yeah, I know. Like, come on, school system. Let's teach about all parts of everything. Yeah, I mean, and also to be one of the only women without, to have American flag flying. Like, yeah. I think the other one was, like, Betsy Ross. Yeah, which also, let's, like, let's add some more to that list, please. Yeah, please. Shall um, we? That's all I'm going to say about that because I'm filled with rage about it. Okay. Because it needs, we need to do better. Well, um, to kind of tie in another thing that we talked about that is, I, th- I would say it's a continuation of Victorian era mourning practices. I mean, that was that time in history, death was such a common thing. Everybody was experiencing it and everybody knew how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And then as we've, grown as a society and expanded and done different things we've done a very particular thing in the western world where we have completely disconnected ourselves from the death of our loved ones completely 
And I first heard of the death positive movement, I would say probably a decade ago. And that's when it started to kind of open my eyes to it. Like my first job that I wanted, I think I said in the episode was to be a funeral director. But at the time the schooling was in Idaho, there was no funeral schools in Idaho. I would have had to go to California and it was crazy amount of schooling and I was paying for my own college. So there was no way I was going to be able to do it. But I started researching it. I've always kind of looked into things of that part of our life. And and then I worked in a retirement home and came face to face with seeing a lot of people at the end of their life mm-hmm. and sitting at people's bedsides without family who they have nobody to sit and die with. And that is what um, she talks about being a death doula and what a death doula is. And it kind of goes by two separate names. The name is, I think, being workshopped a little bit because it's such a new thing. Um, a death doula, the purpose of it runs alongside of hospice care for the end of life. But it serves a very important purpose because death doulas and or midwives, death midwives, are not doctors. So they can't do any of the end of life stuff that somebody in hospice would be doing care-wise. Does that make sense? Yeah. So death doulas help not only steward the person who is on their death journey, they help the family and loved ones with the process also. They create special memory projects. So they either have the person who's going to be passing away write sentimental letters to their loved ones. They create quilts, paintings, um, pictures, all of those different things, whatever the family wants. They help with service planning where needed, end-of-life estate planning. Um, educating on the signs of death to the family members and among um, among other things. Because if you've never seen somebody pass away, it is not like the movies. Nope. No. So death doulas kind of are there to be kind of an unbiased third party to inform both sides of how death works. And there's lots of programs and training centers and things all over the country that are popping up where you can learn and be that. But that is a heavy load to bear. Same with being in hospice care. Yeah, it's not easy. No. Being there for, because I've had a couple patients I've had that passed away on my shifts and stuff like that. And it's, it is like the first couple of times it's hard just because, you know, that person's gone and like the family is grieving and stuff. And it's like, you don't want to be like this impersonal little prick and be like, mm-hmm. okay, so y'all need to like leave like right now. So, cause not fun stuff is about to happen, mm-hmm. but that's really, I think that's really cool. I think that is, I don't know. And I've always seen like anytime somebody dies within a family and super love, I think it should be a celebration of their life, not mm-hmm so much a mourning of what they're going to miss. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, so, you know, especially people who pass away while they're younger and stuff like that. That's, yeah, that's devastating. That's, that's understanding to be so devastating. But a person who's lived out their life in mm-hmm. their 90s and stuff like that, like, you know, they'll, they, they're pissed off at their family to sit in there like grieving like mm-hmm. that. And they're like, no, I lived my life. Like, have a freaking celebration. That's what I've always yeah. told my family. I'm like, if I live until my 90s, which is a pretty good chance because every woman in my family lives to at least 98, <laughs> I was like, throw a party, have some wine, have some good music. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. And it's, you know, I encourage everybody um, to 
revisit or like some of the episodes we've had with Hayden, you know, and he talks about memento mori and all of those things and um, not necessarily look at your own mortality, but don't be so afraid of it. I mean, I'm still afraid of it, especially now that I'm a mom. Yeah. But I think that it's lovely that there's now somebody there that you can look at in that time of your life and ask them questions and receive honest answers about your mortality. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I, that's my biggest thing of why I love mourning and sentiment stuff so much is this, the sentiment behind it, the thought process and the love and all of that thing. And there's lots of different stuff that's happening within that world of um, like sentiment jewelry. Like there is like breast milk jewelry that's made and it's beautiful to like commemorate somebody's either some people do it for the loss of a child because sometimes when you still lose a child, you still create breast milk mm-hmm. and it is um, turned into like a powder and sealed inside of resin and they mm-hmm. make them look like opals. Oh. oh my gosh, they're so beautiful. They're so beautiful. But I think I think that everybody needs to get a little more in touch with just those sides of you because we are not invincible. No, no, we are not. No. And I can't wait for, you know, one day to either create my own memorial piece. You know, we talked about in her episode also a little bit about um, Swedish hair work. Oh, yeah. And I had reached out to Hayden. Previously, I was asking him, I said, was there in Sweden, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, oh, yeah. And he gave me this whole big reply. And I was like, oh, great. Well, I there's so much on it. And I couldn't possibly cover it all here. Like it needs its own episode completely. But um, it is. So she calls it Vamus, Vamus, which is the town in Sweden where these artisans were from. And Swedish hair work looks similar, but so different. And there is a woman who teaches how to make it. She teaches classes. Does she really? Yes. I've, I'm missing her name right now. But anyways, that's something we'll have to cover in the future. Because that is I just, how cool would that be if I learned Swedish hair work? That would be... Like full circle. Yeah. And then I just vaporize. Complete. <laughs> You're like torpedo up. You're like done. I'm like, where? Okay, guys, that was the end of this. Thanks. Thanks for joining. The death doula turns to you and says, Well, she completed her checklist. She was supposed to be a Swedish hair artisan. And yeah, she's done. That's it. Here's her paperwork. Okay, our death doula is kind of similar to the woman in Beetlejuice at the help desk. Oh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Maybe. You never know. And that was that was all the things we covered in Miss Gina's episode today. I learned a lot. Yeah, she was super informed. Well, not only that I learned a lot from her, but you geeked out a few times. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's an episode it's okay. with lots of hair geekery. I and I really had to like stop myself from doing that again here in the Curio I Corner. I could tell you were just like at certain times you were like, Mm-hmm. It's a safe space for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we want to take this next section time to thank our beloved patrons who support the show and support us and deal with all of our nonsense on the other side. To see more about our Patreon, you can visit the links in all of our bios. Right now, we want to thank RJ in Florida, 
Crystal in Nevada, Gina in South Carolina, Gwendolyn in Minnesota, Julia in Sweden, Jasmine in Kentucky, Kyla in Indiana, Mandy and Riley in California, TC Lionel, Melissa, Christina, Erica, Becky, and Ashley in Idaho. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We'd really love to see your review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Tell your friends about us. Share us in your bridge group if you'd like. And as always, I hope you find some good shit. And I hope you remember to look under the tables. You better. Bye. Yeah.